I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. In this episode, I'm joined by Nelson Sivalingam, co-founder of HowNow, one of our direct competitors. Listen in as we put the L&D world to rights, discuss how vendors can have positive relationships with each other, and find out where Nelson sees AI fitting into our worlds. Enjoy. Nelson, hi, and welcome to the Diary of a CLO. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Helen. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, so I suppose to dig straight in, um, you're an author, you're host of the L&D Disrupt podcast, which is a great podcast if no one has listened to it yet. You're also um, an entrepreneur, but I suppose tell me a little bit about your journey journey to founding How Now, and um, from from that moment of founding it to just securing uh, five mil of Series A funding. And con- congratulations for that. I suppose. Thank you. When did you th- first think L and D's for me? Um, I guess before I even thought L and D was for me, I think it was. I did a short kind of corporate career between two great companies and realized actually the big company life wasn't for me. Um, you know, as much as these places were great, I really like to get my hands dirty and, and kind of work with small teams where you can actually see the impact of the work you're doing. So I actually left my last proper job to kind of join a small company. It just incidentally happened i ended up starting my own and that was another business and since then literally for the last kind of a decade and a half i've pretty much been in startups tech food film and and tried a bunch of different things but um i was always quite fascinated with the ed tech space and, and more because i would put learning as a big driver for where i am today um, and you know similar to the conversation we're having today even kind of four or five years ago there was a huge emphasis on the consequence of people not having the skills that are relevant. Um, and essentially, if, they didn't, if we didn't solve this skills shortage problem, you would end up with large sections of the society where people were essentially socially and economically irrelevant, right? And they're going to be left behind. And that's, you know, we all probably know people in our lives where um, just imagine how hard it is for them to get a job or if they don't have the skills. And what that means is they won't be able to support that lifestyle anymore. And if they can't support support that lifestyle, you can't maintain those relationships. It becomes really difficult. And it seemed like a really meaningful problem to at least give a go. Right? And, and I think at the same time, countries around the world were putting money into um, subsidizing skills and trying to tackle this problem. You know, everywhere from Singapore to the UK, we're starting to put money towards this. And so everyone recognized this is a problem that needed to be solved. And I think at that point in my life with my co-founders, we just wanted a really good problem to work on. Uh, and a problem that, you know, even if we gave the next few years and we still didn't manage to solve it, at least it was time well spent. Um, and that's what brought us to LND. You know, we didn't start going, LND is the problem we're going to solve. It was actually around, you know, how do you make meaningful learning a part of the everyday is where we started. And that could have been, you know, B2C marketplace, it could have been, you know, teaching, uh, you know, we even tested out giving a platform to instructors to be able to share what they know. And we tried a bunch of different things and really did take the scenic route. Um, and when we landed, we actually realized you spend most of your adult life at work. 
And actually work is the place where both the business and the individual are both aligned on solving this problem. And so you're more likely to solve it because you've got these two parties investing in solving this skill shortage problem. And that's how we landed with L&D. And, you know, and, and here we are. And that's how I got to L&D. Yeah, I'm seeing I'm seeing there's a potential opportunity in the industry to focus more on that relationship between the end user and the business. And I think there's maybe something missing in the conversation somewhere between what the end user is saying that they're having problems with and that they want to maybe know or learn or do and what the business then thinks, actually, I want you to be doing X, Y, Z. Do you see that as something that needs further investigation or a problem that you're seeing at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think that historically the challenge has been, I think a lot of L&D strategy is built with content first, right? I, I have content here and that dictates um, what you're going to learn, when you're going to learn it, where you're going to learn it, right? So the content is what's driving that. And what that results in is essentially um, it, the risk of you pushing the wrong content to the wrong person at the wrong time is very, very high because it's a bit like playing L&D bingo, you know, I'm calling out a number and, you know, in an organization with 10,000 people, there might be a few people who've got that number, but most don't, right? And every time the numbers don't match, you're essentially wasting time and money and none of us can afford to be doing that. And so to avoid a situation where learning essentially right now feels like an interruption from work and because it feels like an interruption from work, people are reluctant to engage and invest time and therefore employees don't. And, you know, if you look at stats around anything other than mandatory compliance training, um, it's a telltale sign that your kind of traditional LMSs have really failed to engage people and deliver value. And so the question really is about let's not start with content. Let's start with the employee, right? Let's understand, you know, what what is um, – what does this employee need? You know, what, what are their skills gaps? What are, you know, what are their career aspirations? What are they working on right now? Where are they working right now? And start with the employee and let the employee dictate what you learn, when you learn it, and where you learn it. And, you know, one of the key things when we started How Now, it was really none of us came from an L&D background. Right. And so we were really coming at it as outsiders, you know, looking at this problem in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, as an employee being on the receiving end of a learning experience, what, what would I want to see here? And um, what am I more likely to engage with in it? We often say the thing that all three founders had in common was we had all been victims of really bad training at work. So we knew what it was like to be on the receiving end um, of, of kind of training or learning that didn't work for us. And, and I think where we came to the conclusion was this was the problem. Right. So how do we flip this around where you're actually starting with the employee and ending with a learning experience that actually adds value to them? Um, and I think both overall as an L&D strategy, that's what we should be doing um, rather than, you know, buying the largest library in the world and, and then trying to find it users, you know, start the kind of other way around. And I think this is definitely and we're starting to see this. Um, you know, a lot of what I talk about in the book is, is really that right? it's combining the idea of how do you actually apply human-centered design? And I think this is an important piece, like human-centered design or putting the user first. These are not new ideas, right? These have been around for many, many years, and they're fundamental ideas that have disrupted so many different sectors and products. And I think where the gap has almost been is how do you adapt this to L&D? And, and my book was essentially an, 
an attempt of doing that because this is what we were doing with our customers is to go, you get the frameworks, you know, the mental models, but the question is, how do you actually put this into practice on a day-to-day basis? And, and that's where we started to develop our own playbooks. And that's really what I've tried to capture in the book. Mm. Do, do you think there's, because you're right, that kind of human-centered design or human um, experience design has, has been around for a long time. And I don't know whether L&D has just ever quite got it right. <laughs> and do you think there's some difficulty in, like you say, that translation of how do we do it within this environment? Um or are people just not willing to put in that hard work to, to do that translation? Yeah, I think there's uh, probably a couple of things at play here. I think there is a kind of real area of question and confusion around how do you apply this, right? Like every, everyone might know the buzzwords and the mental models. Everyone might know lean and agile, um, but how do I apply this? And this is where actually in the startup community, um, there's a lot of great, literature and examples of how to tactically implement these mental models and, and frameworks. And, and that's what I essentially build upon and, and adapt for the world of L&D. And so I think there is essentially this question of how do I apply this? Um, and I think the other part of it is there's this kind of output obsession, right, where we feel like the more I output and create, the more it seems like I'm adding value and doing work. Right. And, and so that's why we rush to create as many programs and courses as we can or buy the largest library and try to do more, more, more. Um, and actually, in many organizations, measuring the impact of it or whether this actually helps is, is an afterthought. In some cases, it doesn't even happen, which goes to tell you they're not as invested in discovering the outcome right, as they are with delivering the output. And so I think it requires a mindset shift where actually it doesn't matter how many courses or programs you put out there. It doesn't matter how much output you created. It's actually, if you've not helped anyone do a better job, if you've not helped people progress in their career, then really what was the point of all of that, right? And so I think it's a mindset shift for L&D to communicate to the business and say, I'm not here to give you a thousand courses. I'm here to go, okay, you've got problem A, B, and C. Let me influence um, that problem and help you solve it. And actually, we should be able to measure some meaningful metrics if I'm doing a good job of solving that. So I think it's a case of changing the narrative and having a mindset shift. We're very much focused on that, that learning should remain social. It should be people needing to learn from each other and share with each other and um, collaborate with each other as well. And, and via platforms that, that encourage that as well. And one of the challenges we often hear from um, the customers we work with in the industry is how other vendors have in the past made that fairly difficult and the user experience on the platforms that they have doesn't meet the expectation of how they want to interact specifically with other people on their platforms. Have you experienced anything similar? Yeah, I think it goes back to the idea of putting the employee front and center of that learning experience, right? So, you know, the key thing to understand is the employee doesn't care um, where this learning lives. They don't care if it's e-learning. They don't care if it's from a third-party provider. What they want is they either want the learning resource or or knowledge that's going to help them solve a problem, do their job better, and it's going to help them in this moment that matters, and often that knowledge comes from our colleagues, right? If, if we ask ourselves, you know, how do we, most of us, 
learn to advice to flip this back to you, Helen, and I was to ask you, you know, think about the last thing you learned that had a big impact on your career and performance, right? Um, and you think about where did you learn that? There's a good mm-hmm. chance for most people that that's a, a blog, it's a podcast, it's a you know conversation with a colleague, or it's a post on LinkedIn, um, and it's not as often you know, it isn't a course or it isn't a training program. And I think when you put the employee front and center, you realize people want access to a learning ecosystem, which is made up of everything from knowledge sharing to formal learning to informal learning. And what we need to be doing as L&D professionals is essentially enabling that ecosystem and making it easy for people to discover the things they need from that ecosystem. And a big part of that is the knowledge sharing and learning from each other and the social learning part of things. Um, and I think where you see vendors, you know, typically mm. traditional LMSs where they make that really hard, it's because their entire technology and business is based around you upload content, you push it out there, did people complete it or not? And that's pretty much where it's stopped. So it's less about a learning experience and, and more about, you know, managing and storing content and and distributing it and transmitting content and i think it's that mindset shift um is is really what's important right now for lnd yeah absolutely i'd agree and so i suppose to um to broach the elephant in the room i think we both know how competitive the the vendor space is um in the lnd industry and and i think before we started recording i spoke about how there's a real opportunity to be able to learn from each other as vendors um, in ways that maybe we haven't historically done before. And yes, sometimes we're going to win contracts and you're going to win contracts and that's fine. But we're all in a unique position, I think, to challenge L&D from the outside in. Um, there's often that, um, that perception of vendors being on the outside of a business and they don't really understand how things work within it within the specifics of a of a particular business but actually we have this real opportunity to say well we've seen this client do this and they've had this outcome and this happened and maybe you want to try it are you often asked from your clients what best practice is or how have your other clients done this or how should I approach this? Is that something that you experience? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think it's solving this problem is, is partly a technology problem, right? Having the right technology platform, learning tech in, but the other part of it, which is a big part that often gets overlooked is actually the, the playbook part, right? You can't expect to bring in a new piece of tech that has a different way of solving this problem, driving engagement, but then expect to use the same old playbook that you've been using for the last 10 years, right? Um, You need to also reinvent the playbook to solve this problem and they go hand in hand. And I think it's important for every vendor to, especially in the current market conditions, is to really help and work with customers to um, not just implement and get it live, but actually to work with them to help them solve real meaningful problems and deliver that value. And a big part of that is the peer-to-peer learning that comes from actually, um, I learned from customers ABC. Um, And I think given the problem you just told me, I think you could really benefit from that. Um, And kind of touching on the the competitive piece, uh, I think 
what is competitive is the LMS category that's dominated workplace learning technology for the last two decades, right? But actually, I don't think it's that competitive um, in terms of the companies who are trying to move away from that kind of traditional approach, which was heavily dominated by compliance and mandatory training, but actually trying to move towards, you know, how do we drive continuous learning and continuous employee progression, right? I don't actually think it's competitive in that space. And and that's why I'm all open to competitors who come in and do that because there is a huge education piece that needs to happen here. Where And that's not going to happen with any single vendor, right? That, that needs um, a, a group of people to talk from the same um, playbook, right? Is to say, actually, this is what's wrong with this. This is not good, right? This is why you're going wrong. And actually, what you need to um, think about is X, Y, Z. This is the direction we need to go in. Now, once everyone's bought into the direction and they understand, actually, this is the right way for us to solve this problem, then the competition begins, right? Then it could be, you know, do you go with vendor A, vendor B? And, and sometimes it's not as binary as they're better or worse. It's, you know, who's a good fit for you um, as a customer? You know, who, who's solving the problem for you? You know, who's a good fit in terms of working relationship? There's tons of different factors. So I'm all for having the right kind of competitors in the space who help us, you know, raise the bar mm. in the industry, but also educate people around, um, you know, this is not where you should be wasting your money, but actually these are the problems you should be thinking about. And so I think it's healthy to have good competitors in the space. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And we can only get better if we push each other to do better and to think differently as well. And I'm, Miles Runham created a um, digital standards forum, not not precisely because of this, but this is part of the, the the discussion in that how can we get better as an industry if we're all doing very different things? And if someone takes something that they're doing in one place and tries to apply it in another, it doesn't actually, it's not that straightforward to carry it over. So how can we get better at solving the same problems together? I'd love to chat a little bit about um, transparency in the industry and I suppose this is from two, a twofold perspective so firstly from a pricing perspective and then secondly um, if we could dig into the Fosway 9 grid as well briefly um, so from a pricing perspective uh, we, we we tell this story to to people all the time that at an exhibition we shared with someone our pricing immediately when they asked us to and they'd had a they think they'd had five different conversations with um a big learning platform that begins with d and ends in o and there were five meetings down and they they hadn't uh, yet been shared any pricing information and we we know um, we're transparent we have it on our website you have your price per user on your website why did you choose to take that step and have you seen any benefits from yeah that? i guess this wasn't actually a discussion or choice we i mean i mean we did it not because we thought we were doing anything path breaking it was again going back to the idea of you know we we came into lnd as outsiders and it's what we were used to in other software sets as we'd, we'd worked in started companies. And it, it's quite a common practice in other B2B SaaS um, to, to have pricing, especially if you've got, let, sometimes you have it where if you're a very kind of enterprise focused B2B SaaS and actually there's so many custom parts and therefore your pricing is bespoke. 
you know, I think that's the legacy. And I think with LND, maybe, you know, my hypothesis is it's probably happened because historically LND and LND um, system providers had like a large part of professional services tied to it. And professional services has always been about the bespoke pricing. And now people have got to this point where, well, what if they don't talk to us because the pricing is too expensive? But it's like, it's one of my um, oh favorite book. I'm going to butcher the name, but it's, I think it's They Ask, You Answer. But I'll, I'll send it across unless I've got it wrong. But it's a great book on um, basically content marketing. Um, and basically the underlying philosophy is, is super simple, is you share everything that you know your customer is going to ask you. I mean, it's no secret. The customer at some point is going to ask you for pricing. Um, so why not give it to them up front, right? And it's it's anything that you already know. And I do think um, it's, as they say, in the land of the blind, the man with one eye is king. And, and in that way, you know, in an industry where people um, – almost feel like they want to have all the conversation and not deter anyone because of pricing, you are probably putting them off because it seems like there's something there to hide. Um, and actually you're better off saying we cost this much because we do this and this is the value we bring to the table. And actually, if you don't value it in the same way that we do, then we're probably not a good fit, cost, uh, good fit provider for you in the first place. And so, yeah, I think there's probably a legacy and historical reasons for it. Um, but the reason why we did it was no act of protest, nothing. I can't really say we thought about it much. It's just something we've had since day one. Oh, that's very disappointing, Nelson. <laughs> some trailblazing stuff there, but it's just accidental. There we go. <laughs> um, but in terms of then the Fosway grid, so this is a, you know, a, a bit of a point of contention, I suppose, for some vendors. I know we've been very vocal about this in that... Um, we had um, some sort of historical assessment of our platform a long time ago and then have then been uh, put back on a platform without any further investigation. We've put, been put on the grid. Our position didn't change, but it was still there. Um, but also there's obviously the whole conversation around paying to ha have a place in a different place on the grid um, and the problems that that causes with I guess just transparency in, in the industry as well. So we know you you at How Now, you took a very similar stance to us in realising that it is a little bit of an odd concept and, and why should we be, you know, forced to fill in these huge long documents that aren't sometimes even really relevant to the platforms that, um, that we have. Um, but you then this year, I think have you taken the stance to fill in those forms and kind of take that step to see what it's all about. Can you tell me a little bit about that shift in thinking? Because we followed maybe a, a bit of a similar route as well. Yeah, I, I guess, again, going back to I wasn't that familiar when we first got into this space about the Fosway grid. And I think the first time we heard about it was, you know, real early stage startup. We've just got our first big customers. And then, you know, one of our customers goes and. Um, sent us the grid from a few years back and said, oh my God, you guys should so be on this grid. You know, they were obviously highly complimentary about what we had built because they had seen it. They were customers and they were like, I can't believe you guys are not in this grid. And I was like, you're right. I'm not too sure why we're not on the grid. Let me find out how you get on the grid. Right. And so at that time, again, being quite naive to Fosway Group and any of these kind of grids in, in this space, we started looking into it um, and then that's when we realized actually 
it was pay for playing. And actually, my anger at that point mm. was the fact that it, if it, it is paid to play, then why don't you just say it, right? Like, I think it is um, unfair, right? It's unfair for the people it's, it's designed to help. Um, and actually hiding that fact makes it seem like you think people would think less of the grid, in, in which case it, it's, again, going back to the conversation we had about pricing, it's like an open secret. I mean, people already know now, right? And now it is widely uh, known that some people are paying a lot of money, not just to Fosway Grid, but to many other analysts um, to get the recommendations they do in the right arm. Um, and I think just like how if you're an influencer and you're posting on Instagram and it's an ad, um, the way that you now have to you know, put a hashtag to say it's an ad, I think it's only fair uh, that people who are mentioning it. And the reason why we went down um, the route is when our head of marketing joined, we wanted to understand, like, so how exactly does it work? Like, Because surely if people are paying, are you basing where people sit on the grid um, based on how much they pay? Um, and we're curious to understand how do all analysts work in the same way. And, you know, we want to explore it just like any other channel. And what we realized at the point where we'd done the form and further conversations were had was about how much needs to get paid and how it works. And we realized, actually, no, our stance is still the same. You know, we, we don't want to pay. You know, we don't want in the same thing. You know, I have my thoughts on award shows where, you know, you, you buy tables and sponsor events and you end up getting get the award. And I think it's the same thing where, who are we doing this for? And, and yeah, so I have my feelings and frustrations with that. But hey, it is what it is. And, and it's whether you want to play that game or not. And, you know, we made a choice and obviously you guys have as well in, in terms of you don't. And it, it is frustrating because I don't think it's, everyone's aware of how i mean we have one analyst who always cracks me up every year in his list he, he seems to not like us that much um which is fine i accept you know we're not always going to have people who who like us but what amazes me is the guys never looked at the platform right um i'd much rather i'd much rather he you know i'd give him a trial play around with the platform at least then when you write what you write it can be you know a bit more substantial and backed up but you know, I can't be explaining to everyone who reads this guy's article going, guys, just so you know, he's, he's never played with the platform. So I don't know what he's basing this on. But anyway, I, I try not to waste energy on things like that. But I think it's, it's part of the problem, right, that people don't realize that how they're being led in a certain way without the accuracy of the facts behind it. Um, and that's what's so dangerous about about those things. I mean, it's, it's people's livelihoods that are on the line. It's your business. You know, you're not you're not doing something wrong. It's the person that hasn't taken the time to uh, understand your product in any any more depth. But I think the the other side of the Fosway grid and the pay to play, like you say, is the the companies that don't have the the money to be able to do that and are much smaller but they're still making waves they're still the right products for people in the right in the certain instances and yet they're never going to be on that grid they're never going to get a look in from people who could have the exact problem that they could solve and i think that's where my biggest frustration comes in with things like and, that. and look, it goes back to that we look at as a buyer we look at these grids and lists as a way of um, you know, social proof to de-risk the, the purchase. 
And so I get why they exist and why people engage with it. But I think it's important for us to to educate people to go, that's fine if you're looking at this, but just ask these analysts and analysts to you know, call, ask them, you know, who paid, who didn't pay. Um, and secondly, I think, I don't even know where, how useful it is for a buyer because I looked at where we were on the grid and I couldn't tell you why we are where we are. I, and, I, I, and I was trying to put myself in the position of a buyer and I was like, what does this even mean? <laughs> what does it actually mean that, you know, what what does that grid tell me? This particular player who's in this box, they're good for X, Y, Z. I, I don't actually find it as a helpful tool being a buyer of other software products. I'm not too sure if I saw that grid, it would help me make my decision. And it all goes back to fundamentally one of the things we tell people when we're selling to them. Look, we might be a good fit for you. We might not be a good fit for you. That's secondary. But what's really important is, Try not to go out to the market with a, a list of features and and you know with these grids and lists from analysts, etc. Go to the market with a list of problems. That's what you really care about. Right? You care about who's going to be able to solve your problem the best. And as long as you're solving your problem as well as it can be possibly solved, then it does the rest of it doesn't matter. So, you know. I talk about it in the book as well, is just, you know, love the problem, not the solution, and really double down on that. And I think there's still there's still a bit of a way to go, I think, with people recognising that that's where they should be starting in these conversations. And that's fine. Like We can help them as vendors to be asking those right questions. And I think that's where sure. you know, we, we do have that, that say in, well, actually, like you say, we're not the right pro- product for you. You need to go and see X, Y, Z or... Um, explore these options because you actually have a different problem than you think you do and that's one of the things I think we we probably both like about um, being in this position in the industry. We mentioned about um, uh, content organisation and access to content um, a moment ago and and I suppose content chaos is really a bit of a hot topic on people's lips at the moment Um, and we work really closely with customers to to get them to think about well what do you already have what can you curate what do you need really need to create or what can you buy from someone and and that really helps them to think through well actually this is what i do have and this is where i do have a gap and this is the problem that i'm trying to solve with this content how do you tackle that problem with customers yeah and it goes back to what i was saying earlier around you know, people thinking content is the answer and putting content front and center of their um, L&D strategy, but actually it isn't. And so once you put the employee at that center and you're now talking about the employee's needs, now it opens up the conversation around, it's no longer about content or content library. It's about a learning ecosystem you have. The solution to this problem might be um, a resource that you have sitting inside Google Drive. Um, it might be a podcast. It might be a blog. And I think that conversation of making organizations realize the reality is people are going to learn with or without L&D, right? That's the reality, right? M- m- all of us, in most cases, are learning in some shape or form. Uh, frequency might vary, but we're all learning but where L&D plays a critical role is, and I often make this comparison of, it's like the conductor of an orchestra, right? It's the most visible job in the world, but most people are like, well, the musicians can play without a conductor. Yes, they can, but the conductor's there to make sure everyone's playing in unison, aligned. And 
that's where L&D are. They are the conductor of the L&D orchestra and the ecosystem and bring it together and um, connecting people with the relevant learning in the most effective and efficient way. And so often the conversation we're having is, no, it's not just about your course library. There's so much more that you've already got within your organization. Um, and you know, it's, sometimes it's just the self-awareness because I speak to many L&D professionals who can connect to when I tell them, you know, how often do you have people asking you, where can I find X? Where can I find this? Right. And it's such a big waste of L&D um, time to just be the people who are pointing you in the direction to find that. That's a problem that can be easily solved with the right tech, you know, most of our customers, when they launch How Now, the first thing they drive adoption with is unified search. Searching How Now becomes the fastest way for you to find any type of knowledge or learning within the company. And I think it's it's that where let's free up LND's time so they can be more strategic about maximizing the value you get from the ecosystem. So yeah, definitely we're having those similar conversations mm. to what you said. And just to, to wrap up our conversation then, you didn't think I'd let you go without talking a little bit about AI. Yeah. Um, wh- where do you think we're headed in the industry? So we know that ChatGPT has got you know legs in terms of being a tool in your toolkit that you can use. Where else do you think that's going to play a part in what we do? Yeah, I, I mean, there's with AI, for example, when we first came into this, and our CTO, his background is in you know robotics, and he built one of the first kind of um diagnostic ai powered diagnostic tools for the nhs and that's really where we came at this from is how can we leverage the most modern technology and we um you know looked at different technologies within ai in terms of how we drive recommendations um, being contextually weighted etc and so it's it is quite funny i feel like we've come full circle again like because we're back to the point where a few years ago it was i remember sitting in a pitch where a prospect literally said to me in the meeting, these are my requirements. Oh, and I want a bit of AI in that. And and it got to the point where it was literally, you know, and I think we're back there again, where um, now it's actually entered the mainstream consciousness with ChatGPT. That's not to say it's not a, what I would call a real trend. There is so much meaning and value in this technology and it is going to be disruptive in so many ways but i don't think um the ways that people are discussing how it can be used right now i'm not too sure i think this is like the knee-jerk reflex to all how we can use this and i don't think the best use of um chat gbt or generative ai um is, is content creation because content creation isn't our biggest problem right now. You know, well, we just need to take a step back and realize we're in the post content age where content is cheap. It's available in abundance, right? Actually, the biggest problem we're facing right now is discovering relevant content with all of this content out there. And, and so actually there's a risk with um, tool generative AI in general, because it's made it easier for people to create a lot of content, right? And so we're now adding to the abundance of content that exists because it's now faster and cheaper to create more content with generative AI. So I think it's something to be conscious of. Like I know there's a, a lot of vendors in the market rushing to add generative AI to how content's created. Great, but 
yeah, it's just making it easier for you to add to the problem of discovery. So I'm a bit dubious about that, whether that's the most effective way. That said, there are um, a few things I'm really excited about, right? For example, L&D really needs to move more and more in the direction of being able to measure and demonstrate impact. And generative AI can play a huge part in making it easier for us to be able to tell that story. You know, right now, um, L&D are going to dashboards, running reports, sending these reports out to different stakeholders. But with generative AI, we're not that far away from having an interface where I can ask the question going, you know, how effective has this been, right? How effective has this campaign or experience have been? And to get some actual meaningful insights, almost like a human analyst telling me back, you know, that is possible with generative AI. That I'm really excited about. Um, you know, having almost the equivalent of a teaching assistant, like you may have seen at school, you get a teaching assistant who's there to support you on, you know, each one of us having our own teaching assistant to guide us through that learning experience while we're engaging with the content. Um, and, you know, turning even asynchronous self-paced courses, you can now make synchronous by having um, an AI-powered assistant. So I think there's more use cases out there. Right now, what we're seeing is the easiest one to implement. You know, OpenAI have got a really good API. It's really easy to get the table states out there. But I think what's going to be more exciting is the next a few use cases you get out of it. So yeah, in summary, I'm super excited about where generative AI is going, but I think we're still a, a little while off where, where we're going to see the real meaningful impact for L&D. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that insight. Um, I'm, I'm definitely in agreement with you there. Um, and Nelson, thank you so much for sharing so openly in this conversation. Um, I really appreciate your time and, and just, yeah, a big thank you. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast is powered by Thrive. We're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally. Check us out.